You are now listening to Episode 9 of Running for Office, the podcast. I'm your host, Claudia Sabata. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, good day, whichever one is applicable to you. I hope that y'all are doing well. I am actually very, very excited and am doing extremely well, which I don't mean to rub it in your face if you're having an off day, but I am hosting my first campaign workshop this Thursday. I can't even put into words how excited I am about this because this is something that I have dreamt about my whole life. Ever since I was seven years old, I've always told people that I was going to be president. I mean, when you're young, like you just kind of shoot for the stars because why not? And that kind of never left me. That has stuck with me my entire life. I think it's just because of the things that I've experienced, the things that I've seen and noted. And it just makes me really passionate about creating an equal society for all peoples. So to think that this is becoming a reality and that I have actual human beings who are willingly and voluntarily joining this cause with me and they're putting their trust in me, it just, it feels amazing. And it's something that I don't take lightly at all. So if you are already a part of my campaign crew, thank you so much. I know that we haven't even had our first meeting yet, but I I just thank you from the bottom of my heart, really. It means a lot to me, and I look forward to seeing what we can do together. If you yourself are interested in running for office, one, I recommend that you listen to my previous episodes. They're all pretty short, so it'll be a quick listen. Like, you can finish them within, what, like an hour, an hour and a half tops, you guys? I think so. So first, I recommend listening to my previous episodes, one through eight. However, here's a bit of advice. As you think about running for office, there are a number of things that you should be thinking about. Like, can you afford it? Does your job legally allow you to do it? Or will you have to quit? How will you finance it? And can your relationships or friendships support you as you run for office? These are all things that ran through my head, that continue to run through my head. Some of these things I doubt. Some of these things I'm like, oh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see when we get there. Or yeah, I think I can. And I'm just trying to manifest that shit. However, the most important questions that I feel you should first focus on are one, how do you differ from your opponent? And two, what is your overall mission and vision for running for office? Now, this last question differs from the why you are running for office. Why you want to run is likely based on your experiences, things that you have seen, unjust actions that you have seen or experienced, etc., 
You will, unless you're a jaded or career politician or both, you will always remember the why of why you're running, the thing that drives you. However, it is important to understand the message and tone you are trying to send to others by running for office. You must always think about the entirety of your campaign and the effect that it will have on others and their livelihoods, even if you lose. So at the end of the day, what is the single takeaway you want people to have at the end of your campaign, regardless if you lose or win? Now, I've given this quite some thought. As you all may know by now, I plan on challenging Lloyd Doggett in 2022. I am a dreamer, not like in the political sense, in the like I shoot for the star sense, but I'm also very realistic. I understand that it is going to be an uphill battle to win. I know that I may split the dumb vote in TX35, whatever it may look like after redistricting. So I want to make sure that my campaign is rooted in a great mission and vision and one that I can stand by wholeheartedly and one that I think rings true for many others. I know exactly what I'm up against. I'm up against a beloved incumbent who has held the seat for over two decades. I'm up against an incumbent who has name recognition, who has had the time and opportunities to sponsor and co-sponsor progressive legislation. I'm up against someone who has no problem getting his campaign financed. So how do you differentiate yourself from someone who is already a pretty great legislator? Well, you send them a clear message. And my message is this. People deserve to be represented by the common person, by their peer, by their neighbor. I am tired of ingrained, classist, and racist practices that keep good folks from running for office. The idea that you have to have the quote-unquote experience, the degrees, the money, and look and carry yourself and speak in a sophisticated, cough, cough, white way is disgusting. Experience in terms of career opportunities, non-police community intervention and resources, and schooling is inherently classist and racist. Brown and Black folks are not given the same opportunities to succeed in a world that is built by and for only one color of person in mind. Brown and Black folks are not given the same resources in their communities that allow for restorative measures to be taken. In a recent live stream that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had on, I don't know if it was Facebook or Instagram, I think it was Instagram, someone asked her, what does an America with defunded police look like to you? And this was her answer. The good news is that it actually doesn't take a ton of imagination. It looks like a suburb. Affluent white communities already live in a world where they choose to fund youth, health, housing, etc., more than they fund the police. These communities have lower crime rates, not because they have more police, but because they have more resources to support healthy society in a way that reduces crime. When a teenager or preteen does something harmful in a suburb, I say teen because this is often where lifelong carceral cycles begin for black and brown communities. White communities bend over backwards to find alternatives to incarceration for their loved ones to protect their future, like community service or rehab or restorative measures. Why don't we treat black and brown people the same way? 
Why doesn't the criminal justice system care about black teens' futures? Why doesn't the news use black people's graduation or family photos in stories the way they do when they cover white people who commit harmful crimes? Affluent white suburbs also design their own lives so that they walk through the world without having much interruption or interaction with police at all, aside from community events and speeding tickets. And many of these communities try to reduce those too. Just starting there would be a dramatically and radically different world than what we are experiencing now. End quote. This is why my first platform point will be higher education. Is it an upstream cause? Arguably. We must always find way to ensure that people of color are provided fair assistance and opportunities to master their craft, whether that means attending a four-year university, a community college, or trade, vocational, or technical schooling. We must empower people to be the best version of themselves. I can argue that improving higher education obtainability, inclusion, and affordability can help empower disenfranchised and underrepresented communities and begin to break down the barrier to success that has long existed. The following three points are excerpts from the Race and Ethnicity in Higher Education 2020 supplement published by the American Council on Education. Point one. Only one-third of public high schools with high Black and Hispanic enrollment offer calculus, often considered a college gateway course to STEM majors and careers. Lack of calculus partially explains why less than 2% of Black freshmen in the U.S. enter college engineering programs, ultimately affecting the diversity of engineers and the overall number of STEM graduates to tackle public problems. Point two. Even among high-achieving black and white third graders with the same test scores, black children are one-third less likely to be placed in gifted and talented programs. And point three, black and Hispanic students are disproportionately, inappropriately referred to non-college preparatory tracks and special education due to structural forces that systematically underestimate their potential. Racialized tracking that begins in early elementary school results in segregated classrooms within what appears ostensibly as desegregated schools, where qualified minority students are underrepresented in advanced placement classes filled with mostly white and Asian students. Now, there's so much more to be said and so many more essays to read, so many reports to read. But I will leave you all with a little taste of what my fellow peers and I will begin working on starting Thursday. Increasing financial aid and grant resources for part-time and graduate students. Expansion of the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program to include teachers, social workers, and protective services specialists. Creating a centralized, non-traditional student center and website. Requiring all institutions of higher education to disclose the accommodations available to students and their framework for determining those accommodations. And increasing the amount of income a student can report on their FAFSA to reflect the minimum wage that is now law in several states, which is $15 an hour. There are so many more ideas that I have floating around in my head as policy and research are probably my most favorite things in life. And I have no intention of just being a talking head. So if you are interested in joining this movement, please reach out to me on social media or via email at runningforpodcast at gmail.com. I want and need your help, your input, and your talent. Catch y'all in the next one.
Bye.